We're going to continue this morning in our, our new series called uh, Becoming a Contagious Christian. And um, we've been doing this kind of uh, two-fold journey thing together where um, we're, we're talking about things here on the Sunday morning and then we are talking about things in a family group throughout the week. And so uh, hopefully you're involved in both sides of that. I will repeat, as I'm going to say pretty much I think every week through this whole journey this time, that... Um, you, if you're not in one now, you're welcome to join one. You don't have to have already been in a family group to jump in one now. So don't feel like it's too late for you. As a matter of fact, we've ordered some, some more books and stuff because we ran out the first time. So they're on the way in for this first six weeks. Second six weeks, we're going to have as much material as we need. So don't worry about that. We'd love to have you come out and get involved in a family group if you're not currently involved. Not because it does anything for us, meaning individually, but it does something for us corporately. And it also does something for us who participate. Right? It's a blessing to get together and to share in God's word. And uh, it takes some risk. And I understand that, you know, the first time you go to a group and you're not sure how it's going to look. And, you know, I've said before, if you have kids, you're thinking, oh, my kids aren't going to be able to, you know, uh, fit in there. Or, or if you think you have a teenager, whatever it is, it's the, the roadblock, you're thinking, ah, I may not fit in. I would just encourage you to take that risk and, and try it out. Because I believe you'll be blessed. If you go and show up, I believe anytime you get together around the word of God and open it and meditate on it and talk about it and think through it and ask how you can apply it to your lives, it's always beneficial to us in any setting. And so that's what we do in family groups. And so I'd encourage you to get involved as well. Um, I'm not sure, you know, talking about that, I'm not sure if you've ever had that experience where you've been like the kind of the odd man out. I, I'm not sure if you've ever been, if you've ever showed up for something and it's not what you thought. Have you had that experience before? Like you think you know what you're getting into. Um, maybe you get invited to hang out with, you know, by a friend to, to, to some social gathering. You're not sure what it's going to be like. And you show up and your friend is the only person you're going to know there. And then you get there and you can't find your friend. Have you had that experience? And you start to walk around like quickly and you're like, I'm, I'm completely, I don't know any of these people. I don't know what's going on. They all know each other. That's what we tell ourselves. They all already know each other. And I'm the only one that doesn't understand what's happening. And um, sometimes, you know, family groups maybe feel that way. It's not. I, I can assure you people will be thrilled to, to know you're there and to get engaged. But that happens in life a lot, you know, where we can just really tell ourselves lies about the people in the room and how well-connected they are and then tell ourselves lives, lies about how different we are and how we can't possibly connect. There, there's no place for us, we might think. I don't belong here. Right? And uh, that alienation, that distance is not true. As, as just humans, we have so many of these things in common and, and we can share these experiences together. And one of the biggest dysfunctions we have is that when we get together, we begin to isolate or to, I don't know, to kind of distance ourselves or distance others and try to differentiate. And we don't just get together and spend time together. And I'm, I'm talking about this because this week we're going to talk about relationships and, and um, specifically relationships that can redeem, right? I've talked to you all before about redemption and what it means. I've talked to you before a lot about the cross of Jesus Christ and what it means that he died on a tree because that was an embarrassing and humiliating way to die. That was the way the filthiest of the filthy were treated. This cross... Was a, it's like having an electric chair up here and then we have turned it into this like little gold thing that hangs on our neck but there's something there's a trueness in that redemption of something that was so ugly become so beautiful in Jesus Christ 
And when we talk about relationships, and specifically relationships with Jesus and then through Jesus as we relate to one another in these environments like family groups, they become redeeming relationships. They become this, this idea that it's taken out of the trash pile of the world and given worth and value. It becomes important in God's kingdom. And so the story of redemption is a big one. And, and when we talk about today about relationships, we're going to talk about that idea of you know, getting away from the lies and, and embracing the reality that we have in Jesus Christ. Not just that I have, but that we have together in him. Okay? And so um, we're going to open the word and, and, and get in today. But before we do, I'm going to ask that you would join me in prayer. We believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, that he spoke these words to his people for our good. And so we pray when we enter into it, not that the word would be changed, but that we would be changed to understand it. Because it's always been the same. The word has been the same. Pray together with me, if you would. Father God, we come here into your house, and we've already worshipped you. We've, we've proclaimed your goodness. We've celebrated what you're doing in our lives. Our souls have rejoiced, our very tired, physically souls sometimes. And yet we come in today, and we can't help but sing your name. We can't help but acknowledge who you are and the work you're doing. And now today, Father, we continue in worship, and we come into your word, and we want to hear what you have for us from your word today. We ask that your Holy Spirit would push us toward the truth, that we could understand it, that we could embrace it, and that we could live it out by your power and for your glory. I pray, Father, today that wherever we are on our journey with you, if we feel like we're so far from you this morning that we can't possibly get there, we realize that's true. And if we feel like we deserve to be right where you are, we realize that's not true, and yet we're all reconciled through your blood through the blood you shed on this cross. And so, Father God, today, we come into your house asking in your son's name to teach us, to mold us, to shape us, to send us, to share the good news. We love you so much. We can't wait to hear what you have for us today. We pray these things in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we're going to pull up a couple of, uh, we're going to run through some scripture today and read it. I shouldn't say run through it. We'll take our time. It's not a lot, but we're going to have two different readings. If you don't have a Bible with you today, go ahead and grab one of ours. We're going to read Matthew um, 9, 9 through 13, and we're also going to read the other one there, um, Luke 5, 27 through 32. Read them in order. If you want to put your finger in Luke and then... Um, then turn to Matthew. We're going to read Matthew first. We're going to spend most of our time in Matthew today. You're going to realize quickly when I read this uh, that these are pretty much the same passage of Scripture. But, by the way, this is also recorded in the Gospel of Luke. You'll remember that the Gospel is just the good news. I thought it was pretty interesting. We're talking about evangelism, and um, one of the things that's interesting about that is that it was not an odd thing to be called an evangelist uh, as a follower of Jesus, because Every one of these books, we call them Gospels, are evangel evangelical in nature. In other words, they are trying to share good news with all of us. All right, let's hear what Matthew has to say. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees thought, saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? 
On hearing this, Jesus answered, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, because I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. And then go ahead and flip back. Now hold your spot in Matthew. We're going to turn back to there, but flip back to, to Luke as well. I'm going to read that same um, story in Luke. Now, one thing I'll point out to you is that this one records his name as Levi. You'll remember that in, in the New Testament and actually in the scripture all over, people have a couple of names. But this is Levi. It's the same, same story here, 27. So after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And, and I want to read both of those passages. We'll work out of both of them today. I want to kind of talk through and see some principles that we have in, in, in both Matthew and Jesus and his response to the, what's happening around him. But also I want, to, I want to say that that's found in Mark as well, the Gospel of Mark 2, 13 through 17, if you want to read it there as well. And so today I just kind of want to talk about... Um, what we, what we see in this passage, and it's going to be pretty, I mean, we're not going to get real fancy here because I don't think it takes a lot of fanciness to proclaim the truth of what the Word of God has. One of my big issues sometimes, people say, I can't understand the Word of God. It's so complicated. I can't understand the Bible. Or people say, it's an old book. It doesn't make any sense anymore. And I hope that this morning, through our conversation, we're going to be able to make some sense out of what the Bible says to us today. But, so here, here's the story. We kind of have Jesus in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is, has gone out and he started picking up disciples. You'll recall that he picked up um, the Brothers of Thunder, right? And, and uh, he, they were fishermen. We talked about them having uh, rough hands. They were workers. And, uh, and, and he had been going along collecting disciples. And it, you can just imagine, just get the picture of Jesus walking along teaching. I, I will also say that crowds are following him as he's teaching. So he's in the streets, he's teaching, and people are following him, but he's selecting people to be disciples of his. There are certain people that the word of God records that he went up and he said, you follow me. And, and they would respond and they would follow him. And he became, they became part of their inner, Jesus' inner circle that he would spend all of his time with. He would eat all of his meals with. He would send on missions. Later on, he would send out into the world. He said, as, as sheep among wolves. Right? And so this is what was happening. Jesus had a lot of people following him, but a few people that he was saying, I'm sending you, I'm sending you, because they knew him and they were growing to be like him. Their, their rabbi. And so Matthew is, is interesting, but the, the first thing I want to talk about here, just in Matthew 9, uh, 9, is it says, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And then Matthew got up and followed him. Now you'll recall that what we read in Luke says that Matthew got up, left everything, and followed him. And so the first thing that I just want to make, and it's kind of obvious, right? But I think we can miss this, that Jesus chose Matthew like, he's just walking through the streets there, and he's got people behind him, and he's teaching about the kingdom of God coming. If you read in Matthew, it's about chapter 9, so there's a lot of stuff that happened before this with Jesus. A lot of red letter stuff has already happened. But here he is, and he says, in the midst of his teaching, in the midst of his ministry, he says, and you, follow me. 
And Matthew gets up and follows him. And you might go, well, yeah. I mean, if Jesus said to me, follow me, I'd follow him. Right? You might be like, if I was working in my boring job that I hate so much, and Jesus came through and said, hey, dude, you want to quit work and follow me? Walk on water and stuff? Sure. You know what's interesting? Matthew was a tax collector. And I spent some time on this this week because I really, I always wondered, what does that mean, tax collector, you know? And, and I kind of went through this progression of realizing what it meant to be a tax collector in that day. What's interesting about the time of Jesus and when he came into the world is that Israel had been, had been overrun by the Romans and they were kind of in a, a police state. They were a province, a providence, I think it's called, of, of Rome. And so they, would, they were kind of outliers, and, and you know, Rome had its kind of main area, but these were, they were just expanding the whole, it's called Pax Romana, right? The expansion of Rome, the peace of Rome. They were just bringing it to the whole world. They were dominating and then ruling everyone. But you see, for people like the Jews who, who loved to be ruled by God, this was really offensive, now, we might say, well, of course it's offensive. It's always offensive if you're oppressed or someone else is telling you what to do. But this was really a foreign power telling them what to do. And see, I always thought with Matthew, I thought he was like, you know, working for the man. You know what I mean? I mean, tax season's coming up. And what I thought at first was Matthew was like the guy with the tie and the, you know, pocket protectors. And he's going, you didn't file your taxes properly, <laughs> you know. And uh, Rome is not happy. Hmm. That's why I thought Matthew did. And honestly, and this is a, my fault, I'll just admit this though, and I apologize to you guys who are financial guys and stuff, but I always think, you know, these guys, they don't, they don't know, right? Those guys are smart, aren't they? That's how they figured out that you didn't pay your taxes right. Well, what's interesting about Matthew is that's not how the system works. And what really happened was Rome was expanding so quickly into all the territories that they couldn't get the money back from the land fast enough, you see? Because Rome had bills to pay. And so what Rome did is rather than trying to get every providence to send back their money to, the, to Rome for every square acre of land or whatever, however they were taxing rent, they developed this thing called farming, okay? And it's the same thing we have today in farming, which is really mind-blowing, and I won't even try to explain that because I don't fully understand it, to be honest with you. But basically, it was they were trying to project the future benefits of the land and then give a portion of that back to Rome because they were ruled by them. And so what happened was, instead of having every person pay a rent, what they did is, there were some rich people in Rome. They were very wealthy. They had more money than what to do with. And so they would say, I'll tell you what, Roman government, I will pay the taxes for this providence. And then I can collect. And Rome goes, cool, steady income stream. So these intermediaries would pay them taxes. Okay, now here, here is like Israel out here still. And then these guys would hire people who were in the area to be rulers or, or um, collectors in that area. And they were called prefects or something, or they were called like chief tax collectors. And they were kind of the next muckety-mucks in this chain of command, getting the money back to Rome. And, and so these guys would get the march orders from these guys who had the money. And they're like, I paid a lot of money. I got some risk. You go collect my money for me. And then these guys here, well, they didn't want to go out and do all this work in the streets. So they'd hire these little minions in the streets. You getting the picture? Now, this little minion here is a Matthew. Okay? And when they would hire somebody to do this in the streets, they wouldn't necessarily hire, they didn't want like outsiders coming in saying, pay Rome, pay Rome. But they wanted somebody who knew the people, 
right? So this was Matthew's job. This is what he did to provide for himself and his loved ones, his family. But like I said before, they weren't real happy about it. And so I just want to get to this point because you have to really get a picture of what's happening because what these guys who were at the end of this food chain would do is two things they would do. The first is that they would owe the money back to the chief uh, tax collector. By the way, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector in the Bible, right? And so they would owe that money back to them, but then they'd have to go out and collect it. So I'm trying to get a mental picture, kind of like maybe like Dog the Bounty Hunter, you know, a little bit of that going on. Because they could take him to court, a Roman court, and have them found guilty of not paying taxes, and they would go to prison, or the Romans would kill them, or whatever. And so it was a real risk. And, and, and the flip side is, they also had this opportunity to kind of be like, you know, Tommy Two-Toes, you know what I mean? They could threaten people. Well, you're not going to pay me what I want you to pay me? I will say that you were trading unfairly. Rome won't have that, and you'll be killed. So they would threaten and extort money. If you don't believe me, the Bible records where, where they were saying um, to John the Baptist, he was out in the wilderness baptizing, and they were so repentant for their sinfulness because God is righteous. They would say, what should we do as tax collectors? And John's word was, collect no more than what is owed to you. Meaning that there was such a practice of people taking more than they were owed that it was, the first thing I do is quit stealing from the people. So people in Matthew's job, you see, they would take advantage. So say you owed the government 3000 they might say you owed the government 4000 And who's going to argue with them? That's what, the, that's what the tax collector said. So you had to pay it. Now, if this isn't bad enough, I want to get one more picture here of what's going on, because I think it's so important what's going to happen. And, and we read these words, and they don't mean too much to us. But the way they would collect is they wouldn't really go out to the houses and kind of knock on doors, but they wait at the city gates. So get the picture, Matthew, Jewish by birth, in the city, sitting at the city gate with his little tax collector booth, right? He's got his folding table and he's got his little thing up there and he's just watching people walk by. Who's walking by? People who have raised crops, people who have farmed the land, people who have raised animals, people who have traded and have goods and services and they're, they, they've worked themselves to the bone, their families are starving and you come through the city gate and here they see this no good so-and-so Matthew. You know what Matthew's doing? He's watching them all. Wait, what you got in the bag? What, what, you got, what you got wrapped up under your arm there? Let me see it. Put it on my table. Let me see what you've got during a trade today in the city. And he could collect whatever he thought was a fair tax on that stuff. Because he'd already paid Rome. Rome had already been paid by that other dude. And, and it, there was just this big feeding chain. I don't know how you'd feel about that. When we talk right now with the TSA in our own country and they want to open our bags and search our stuff and we're all offended. Who are you people? We're the government. So what? And this is what happens. This is a foreign government who sat at the city gates and every person that came by, they would examine them. It was you were always suspicious. And there was this, there was this, I don't think hatred is too strong of a word. There was this real, because these people weren't just stealing, they were mocking God. They were sending Israel's money back to the oppressor Rome. So here's the picture. Jesus is walking through the city with his disciples and his followers. And he sees this guy who's looking for, you know, what are you all carrying that you owe me for? And Jesus says to this guy, Matthew, follow me. 
something else that's really wild here is that Matthew had a really good job if you could stomach being hated by all of your friends, right? He made a lot of money. Most scholars believe that he gave up more financially as a follower of Jesus than anyone else who left to follow him. More than the fishermen who dropped their nets. More than the people who left women, wives and children at home. More than those who, who, who sold farms and, and gave it away. Matthew had a huge future in business. And he walked away from it. So what I realized in my little thing, I went from IRS nerd with the tie thing to really like a collections agent. You know a collections agent? But not just a real collection agent, like someone who's accusing you of a false debt that you owe that you don't really owe. And not really a false debt you don't owe only, but your brother. So it's not some stranger saying, hey, pay up, buddy. It's your brother. And he's going, you owe this. And you're going, I don't owe anything to these people. It's important to understand that because of what's going to happen next, you see. The next thing that happens, if you look back in your Bible, it says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw this man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he said, follow me. And Matthew got up and he followed him, which is amazing in and of itself. But the next thing that happens in Jesus' redeeming relationship with Matthew is that Matthew goes back and he throws this mega party for Jesus. Did you hear what it said in Luke? That's what it said. The Greek says megas. It means huge. Now I already told you that Matthew was pretty well off. And so something has happened to Matthew from the moment that God has called him and the moment he's decided that this is not what it's about, that there is redemption in this Jesus guy, that there's teaching in him that's true, and they're following, and Matthew is following him, and Matthew says, hey, let's go to my house because I got all kind of cool stuff. And they just blew the place out. They had a feast, it says. He threw a feast, a mega feast. And you know who Matthew invited to the feast? Everybody he knew. You know how Ruby said earlier, she sent out letters to 50, you know, some 52 people. That's what he, he's like, hey, everybody, come over here. What's going on with Matthew? He's thinking, you got to meet this Jesus guy. You guys can't believe it. You know how everyone hates us? He loves us. You know how everyone says we're worthless and we're evil? He says that we can be used by God. And so he, he, just, he has like a going out of business party. And he just pulls out all the stops. We know this because after this, Matthew follows Jesus and they become itinerant. They just wander, wander, wander together. You know, preaching the gospel, sharing the good news of the kingdom of God that has come. And so Matthew has this mega party, and, uh, and he brings Jesus back to his house. He did this really funny thing that's, that's pretty interesting. Is he, and he, was, he had this gathering of people that was unheard of. Because, you know, two things that they probably knew was this. If there were tax collectors, there might be prostitutes in the room, but there weren't going to be any rabbis. If there were rabbis, there weren't going to be any prostitutes or tax collectors. And Matthew gets everybody under this one roof with Jesus. And they're just having a good time. As a matter of fact, I again don't think that the word translates well here because the, what it says is that Jesus was reclining at the table with them. You'll remember that when he ate the Last Supper, he was reclining at the table with his, his disciples. It's the way they would eat. It was a low table. It was pillows. It was kind of sitting back chilling, right? I almost said chillaxin. I apologize for that. 
But that's what they're doing. They're just sitting there like, I mean, I love that story about how the disciple whom Jesus loved put his head in Jesus' chest and talked to him. I'm not sure I'd be comfortable with that as a guy these days. Like, dude, you're in my space, you know? But that they were just totally, you could just see it, just get the image of this big party and all the food they could want. And all of Matthew's treasures are poured out for these people. And he's got this huge party going. And at the middle of it is this new teacher, this rabbi named Jesus, who's saying the kingdom of God is made for people just like you. What? And it's abundance. And it's beautiful. And people are having a great time. Later on in scripture, Jesus says, John came abstaining, and you called him crazy. I came eating and drinking, and you called me a drunk. But none of you are listening to what God is doing. Either way. So he has this gathering of people in his house. It's just unheard of at the time. It's completely crazy. And, and, and he's, he's just there, and I don't know what's going on. I love, though, the ratios. I asked earlier in the service, have you ever felt uncomfortable with something? Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, this is weird? I'll tell you what. I bet you for the disciples, those like the fishermen even who were called and excited, when Jesus walked into that tax collector's house, they're going, oh, Lord, Mama's going to have a fit. You know what I mean? I mean, Dad's going to disown me now. I mean, this was the high-stakes deal to enter into this room, and I would bet that those Followers of Jesus who were in that room were very uncomfortable with what was happening. You know? As a matter of fact, whenever Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, the same thing happened. They were, everyone was so offended. Why would you ever go to the house of a tax collector? They asked. Have you no love for Israel? So, this was the experience. And as a foreigner in a foreign land, I can't imagine what it was like. You know what's funny? I, 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 the, the, I was thinking of a time that, that I had an experience like this, and the one time I remember, it was so unique. I was a young man, probably in my like seven, 17, 18, something like that, and I was invited to a church service. And this was probably, what was it like in the late 80s or whatever, and, and, which is a long time ago, right? And I was in the service, and I remember they were putting words on the screen, with like the overhead like projectors from school. They were changing out these worship songs. And these people around me had their hands in the air and they were singing songs to this black and white overhead projector. And I'm just going, these people are weird. You know what I mean? I remember, I'm not making, I mean, I remember thinking that. What are these people doing? I felt like I was the only one there who didn't know what was going on. And I just walked out confused like, what was that? I think the opposite is happening here. I think that whenever, you know, Jesus and his disciples show up, it's like, what is going on here? And, and then to be in there and see all the riches, you know, that Matthew had acquired through taxing the Israel, uh, the Jewish people, how must he have felt, how must they have felt to see this? So here they are, though, and they're having this party. And the bottom line is this. For Matthew, and I believe this, he couldn't wait for his friends to meet Jesus. I told you that the, all the Gospels are called evangel evangelical because they were written by people who were trying to communicate the good news of Jesus. And so Matthew's one of those guys, he wanted everybody to know what the good news was. And, and so um, he just couldn't wait for his friends to meet Jesus. He's like, you guys aren't going to believe it. And he had these people who had a relationship with him. He just invited them to come together in the house and just hang out, eat, which was a sign of status. 
by the way, in the culture. Break bread together. God's working here. That's crazy. I'll tell you the next thing that we should notice from this. So first of all, you know, Jesus calls Matthew specifically. He doesn't make a mistake. He knows who he is, and he knows what he wants from him, and he, and he calls him. Second thing is, he, Matthew has this crazy big party for him, so he can hang out with his, his, his lost friends, his, his tax collectors and sinners. And, I mean, it does say everyone was there. It was crazy. It was a pandemonium. Next thing that happens is um, the Pharisees get offended. Now, this is interesting because I told you the scene, and, and I would venture... I guess that if you and I are walking by a scene like that today, if we saw some place with low tables, people reclining around and eating and partying and having a good time, and someone was to say to us, God is in the middle of that mess, I bet you you'd be like me and you'd say, I am not going in there. I don't know where God is, but he ain't in that mess. And so this is the Pharisees. And when they see this, they go, God is offended. God is offended with all of this. He's offended with these people. He's offended with their sin. He's offended with this rabbi who would say he cares about them. You see what's happening. And it was a righteousness welling up in them. I mean, they understood. They had learned. The, you know, the, the word says they learned the, the first five books of the Bible. By the time they were like 12 years old by memory. I mean, and these guys were picked to, to be trained and to, to be knowledgeable in the law. And when they looked at that, they could speak with authority and say, God is not there. They were used to being the spiritual overseers of everyone. And when they see this, it's too much to stomach. It's too much to bear. And so the Pharisees get offended. Very offended. And the biggest offense wasn't necessarily what was happening in the room, but it was who was there. No, no rabbi should be caught dead in a place like that. You know, to even be with these people, was, was, it made you dirty. Hope you ain't going back to temple anytime soon because you are filthy now. See? And Jesus is laying right there in the middle of it at the table, eating. Don't miss that. I would venture a guess that today, many of us, as well-meaning as we can be, would be absolutely offended by some places that believers in Jesus are going to reach people who don't know him. And we would stand outside, and we'd look in there, and we would just, just judge. Oh, that's awful. Oh, if Jesus was here. Jesus is rolling over in his grave. No, he's not. Jesus is calling his people into places where he's needed. And so... I almost have a thought here that if in some way, we said this before, there's be people around us in our lives that we aren't comfortable with. And if some way, if we aren't offended, if some way, if someone else who knows Jesus as Savior isn't a little offended by what we're doing, if they're not a little concerned, we're probably way too far on the orange side of the tape. Do you know what I mean? We're way too far beyond the safety barriers here. Jesus didn't live his life there at all. So, uh, I'll get to the last point here, but before you do, one, one of the things I thought was really cool, and, and uh, I saw Gwen this morning, I don't think Lance is with us today though, but Lance was talking about one of our habits that we do as, as Christians. We have this tendency, and by the way, prayer concern cards are on your, on your uh, connection cards at the bottom, 
And uh, I keep meaning to say this the whole time during the series, but I really, I really would love for you, if you know someone that you're praying for, that, that they would um, come to understand or to know Jesus as Savior, to, to follow him, to answer that command, will you follow me? And be like, yes. I would encourage you to write that name down, and not in any weirdness, or just put a person down. If there's a person, say, pray for a person for me. You don't have to say who it is, because we we're not going to try to, we just want God to intervene, and we want to be part of that. So if you want us to be praying with you, Please write that down. But one of the things we talked about with that was this. Lance said, too many of us pray for folks who don't know Jesus and only talk to people who do. Right? He read this in a book, so it's not his idea. Ask him who it was, because I can't remember. He told me who it was. I can't remember who said it. But he said, what would happen if we pray for people who do know Jesus and mostly talk to people who didn't? I want to say that again, because I feel like I'm... Instead of only talking to people who know Jesus, but praying for those who don't. What if we prayed for those who know him and mostly talked to people who don't? That would probably be a game changer. That would probably put you in some risky situations, some places that you're not comfortable. But it's much more the model that Jesus had. When he prayed and sent out his disciples as sheep among wolves, he prayed for them and sent them out to talk to those. So that's the, that's the thing now here. Let's go, look back in the scripture here. So, um, so Matthew says, uh, uh, he has this big party. And this is what happens. And it's interesting because when the Pharisees saw what was happening at the party, they asked the disciples, which is interesting to me. They didn't go to Jesus. They didn't go to even Matthew, the owner of the house. But they asked the disciples of Jesus, why did your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Right? And I won't say that he's wrong in saying, they're wrong in saying, identifying these people as tax collectors and sinners. They're absolutely right. But Jesus answered the question. And then Jesus answered this question in a way that is kind of surprising. Jesus equates himself to a doctor here. And this is what he says. To a question he was not asked by people who were not interested in really hearing what he had to say, this is what he says. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Right? And so he's saying, what kind of a doctor would I be? if I only hung out with people who are well all the time? What kind of a doctor would I be if the sickest of the sick, the people who, who have no hope of healing if someone wouldn't intervene on their behalf, wouldn't come to them and, and live with them and spend time with them? I'd be a terrible doctor. That's not my job. He actually goes on to say here, um, we'll talk about 13 in a minute where he says, but go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But he says this, I have not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance, right? I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And that is an amazing thing to say to Pharisees. Because see, Jesus wasn't picking the A team here. You know what I mean? He was picking God's team. He was communicating a message of salvation to those who were lost, hopeless, far from God. And Jesus says, what kind of a doctor would I be? I remember one time I went in, into, a, a, you know, I took our kids to see our pediatrician. And you get in, and there's the well side and the sick side. And even when my kid's sick, I'm always trying to justify it. Like, we can sit on the well side, can't we? You know, he's not that sick. Listen, in the waiting room of Jesus, everybody's sick. Everybody's sick. And the Pharisees' mistake was they looked in from the outside and they could not see themselves in any way 
equivalent. They couldn't see themselves as lost or as needing God or, as, or, or anything. And they sat in judgment over the people that God loves. The, that loves. I won't say the most, because he loves us all the same, but of the people that God loves, they're just judging them. And now I'm not going there. Well, Jesus uh, won't have it. And so what he tells them to do, which is really funny, is he tells these experts in the law, he says, you know what you need to do? Go back and study some more. Look up Hosea. It's got a really cool passage. It's in 6, 6. Hosea 6, 6. And it says this, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Now what's cool is, and I'd encourage you to read Hosea 6 because it's interesting, because what it says is, it's talking about how Israel is unrepentant before the holy God and that they don't even understand what he's telling them to do. That they're doing all the wrong things and not doing the things that they ought to be doing. And so, in the middle of this passage, in Hosea, it says uh, that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Right? This compassion for others. Interesting that he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And you know what the word righteous here means? It's interesting. It's diakonos, deacons. Right? So God didn't come to call deacons. He came to call those who were hamartos. They were missing the mark repeatedly. And that's true for you and for me. So the warning is not just for those who are in the room to, to repent and believe the good news of Jesus, that God loves them as a plan for them. But the, the good news is also for the Pharisees who would stand out in judgment because God would say, if you don't see yourselves as needing to be re, you know, reunited with me, if you don't see yourselves as needing to be reconciled to me, if you think that you've lived a good enough life on your own, that you can find peace with me, the holy God of the universe, you are sorely mistaken. You're missing the whole point. And Jesus won't have it. This sounds a lot like Matthew 15, where Jesus talks about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a wayward son. And what he says, he says, the lost sheep is desired or valued by the shepherd. And the lost coin is valued by the woman. Now hear this. And the wayward son is valued or prized by the father. In Luke 15, Jesus communicates the passion that God the Father has to bring us back to himself by any means necessary. So here's my question as we wrap up. This is the final question I have. Are we doing this stuff? Are we taking risks for those who are far from God? I don't mean as a church. And that's a good question. Are we corporately taking risks for people? Are we individually, though? Because, you know, the church is the people of God. And in your day-to-day -day walk, are you risking a conversation? Are you taking a chance? Are you asking questions? Are you, are you doing things on purpose? You know, the word of the year is intentional, being intentional. Are we being intentional? Do we, do we have a heart for the things that God has a heart for? Do we call valuable the things that God calls priceless? His people. Jesus says everything else is going away. Moth and rust will destroy it. It'll be carried off. But the people of God matter to God. 
We hear here a, a, a rookie, Matthew, brand new follower of Jesus, and he's just so stoked. He's just doing stuff. I'm just going to do it. It's going to be crazy. And you've got these veteran Pharisees who are like, no, don't do that. That's not right. It's wrong. Listen, we've got to be concerned like Matthew for sharing Jesus with our friends. I had a, a, a good friend of mine, and, and they, would do these, they would do on purpose something that just really struck me while I was reading through this passage. They did the same thing. They would have this party at their house. They would have people they knew who, who thought they were far from God, who were far from God because they didn't know Jesus as Savior, but they would invite a whole bunch of these people, and they would call a few of their friends who knew Jesus, and they'd say, hey, you want to come over and have supper with us? And, and I'm like, well, you know, what are we, what are we doing? Well, you know, just I'm going to invite a whole bunch of my friends who don't know Jesus, and we're not going to do anything weird, but just come and hang out with them, and we'll see what happens. I was amazed how many of the conversations without any agenda Turn towards spiritual matters. We are spiritual beings. We know there's something more. We know it. And you sit around and you break bread and you start to talk about what matters in life and where, what are you doing and where are you at? And all of a sudden these questions come up. Well, I don't know. What, I don't know. Something's not, I don't know. And you can just begin to have a conversation. This is what Matthew did and people are still doing it today. You and I have the power to do it as well. So here's the deal. I want to go to, I'm, going to, I'm going to wrap up with a few kind of practical ideas, some ways that we can do these things. Uh, take some risks, you know. But, I mean, the bottom line is that we can't care about people we don't know. We can't care about people we don't know. And if all you know are people in church or if all you know are people, you know, who are whatever, super safety or whatever, then, then you're not involved in this kind of. And, and that's not good news because the reality is this, that um, if we aren't involved with folks, um, they... We aren't in the, in the conversation with God in a lot of ways, right? It's bad news for us if we're not involved with people who don't know Jesus because we don't ever get to do anything, <laughs> really. Just the motions, right? The routines. You go and engage somebody who don't believe like you believe and, and you'll be invigorated. Don't go to win. Just go to have a conversation. And, and not only is it bad news for us, it's bad news for them because obviously someone came and shared the gospel with us. I have a friend of mine right now that's going through this process and he's saying, where was the church my whole life? Where was the church whenever I was a child? Where was the church whenever my mom and my dad needed them? Where was the church when my dad was dying and hopeless? This is deep work. And it falls on you and I. And, and it's a real question. It's a real question for people who come to faith. And they say, where was the church of Jesus Christ when we were experiencing these things far from him? So here's the thing. There are a few ways we can do this, some simple ideas, uh, how we can become more engaged in the lives of others. And the first is to be a contagious consumer. That's kind of a cheesy thing to say, but the reality is that you and I, we do a lot of stuff with money. You know, we, we spend money a lot of places. And a couple of things we can do is, and this is something that's kind of cool, but I've started doing it, is you don't have to pay at the pump. Do you know that's true? As hard as it is to believe, you can actually walk like 50 feet to the door and see a human being and give them, you know, cash, right? Dave Ramsey fans, and get back change and have a real conversation in the process. It'll take you 30 seconds, maybe two minutes if the line's long, you know. But you can actually do that. You can be intentional whenever your waitress comes up and says, Hi, my name is Jordan. I'll be serving you today. You can be like, Hey, Jordan, how are you? If they don't tell you, I'm sorry, what's your name? What's going on in your life? 
You know, it'd be weird, but you can ask them questions like you care. You know, they're human beings, not like machines. You can, you can be a generous tipper at the end. Some of you are going to go out and have lunch today after service. You know, I just heard from another server this week, and they said, sometimes church people are the worst people because A, they're impatient, B, they're crabby, and C, they're bad tippers. Now, I don't think that's true. I think most folks I know are good tippers, not crabby, and, not, and very patient. But, you know, make an effort maybe. Maybe if you are, you know, make an effort. You can be a blessing to someone else by doing it on purpose, having an honest conversation, engaging people, things like that. The second is this. When you talk to people, have a deeper conversation. Here's an example. Someone asks you how you're doing. You don't just have to say fine. We know that. But you also don't have to say, you know, what's going on in your life. You don't have to just talk about the safe stuff. If you've been seeing something that God's been doing in your life, take a risk and tell somebody. You won't believe what God's been talking to me about lately. You won't believe what I've learned in the last two years. Ruby Burns would say, you won't believe where God's going to send me. You can give answers that are more meaningful than just the normal answers. The second is that you can ask again. So like, if you ask someone else, how are you? And they say, fine, ask them again. So how are you? Then, you know, you ask me twice, I'll give you two answers. Try it out. Ask somebody twice. You'll get different answers. You can have a real conversation. Getting to know people who are around you, who are hurting. God has them all around. There's no lack of people to interact with. No lack of people to share the good news with. A couple more. Strategic recreation and exercise. This is kind of fun. We're doing a couple things in the family Bible. The first is this crazy FBC athletics thing, which just is kind of this organic thing that's happening. And we're out like at the KRC doing it, and it's a blast. I'd encourage you to come out and hang out. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, and then also we're doing like softball and stuff. You know, we can, some guys will come out and play softball, but they won't come to church. And we're, not, we're playing softball because it's fun. Don't get me wrong. But you know what? People notice. It's different. People get that. You know, you guys don't throw your gloves when you miss a ball. You don't throw the bat against the fence. You don't, you don't threaten the umpires when they make a bad call. Or you threw your glove or threw your bat, and one of your friends on your team said, hey, hey, cool out. It's only a game. Right? Even when you lose it, you're like, yeah. We had a guy last season, had to go, went back and apologized to an umpire because he had a fit on a bad call. Praise God. Be intentional about where you exercise, who you hang out with. When you're going to play a game, invite some people to go with you. Get involved in the community, right? Civic involvement, things like that. Other ways to be out there in people's lives, doing the work. Jesus would be out there hanging out with them. He would not be stuck in his own little box, you know, safe from the world. The fifth thing is invite Jesus to work with you. You know, just do that. Bring him into the conversations. Do it mentally. When you're walking up and you're ready to see your boss and you're terrified, just bring Jesus into the meeting. Whenever there's, you know, your boss has two chairs on the other side of his desk, just say, that one's for Jesus in my mind. That's for Jesus' seat. What's up? Going to negotiate your salary? King of kings? My boss. My boss. King of kings. You know what I mean? Listen, you can take him anywhere. You go into the lunchroom during lunch and you're eating by yourself with your like, you know, noodles all rotten or wherever they are and you can look around there and wonder, hmm, who can I talk to today? You can do these things. Take Jesus to work with you. And the last is this, going to your neighborhoods. The whole second half of this is going to be by our neighbors at the second six weeks of the series so I'd encourage you to do that. Sometimes, you see, 
that we think you have to go to the hospital when you're sick and people don't want to go to the hospital, but the truth is this, that Jesus is a at-home physician. He, he doesn't wait at the hospital for people to come to him. He goes to them right where they are. He came to you and to me. And so I would encourage you to just be intentional about that with me. That's the challenge for the week. That's the challenge for the week. If you have questions, you want to talk about how you can do that, if there's something that's been bugging you about a certain situation or whatever, one of the check boxes says, you know, bring Jesus home or to work with me. I mean, check that box, and I'd like to talk to you about it. But if you don't, just do it. Just do it this week. Try it out. In one little way, try it out and do it. I think we'd be blessed if we do. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and pray, and, and we're going to trust God with what he's doing among us here today. We're at the band club. They're going to do one final song but, uh, of, of worship to God, our, our gift to him for what he's done to, for us. And um, I don't know if today was your risk day. You know, I mean, I want to say that if, if today was your risk day and you're like, I ain't never going to church. I'm so tired of church. I'm gonna, I've been to church or whatever. And you came, took a risk today. I want to say, thank God you took a risk today. I appreciate that. I remember being that person, you know. And I, I hope that you understand that we really, really care. If you don't believe that Jesus loves you, that he died for you, not that you could just like fit in with a group of people, but that you could be transformed in your life. I pray that you can know that today. So join me in praying today. Father, we've come into this house, this big house you've built for your people. There's so much in your word that proclaims this truth that you've come to seek what was lost. You've come to restore what was broken and thrown away. And Father, today we come to you and we acknowledge before you that we are those broken people, those flawed and messed up people. And we thank you so much that Jesus would hang out with us. We thank you so much that he would not just know us now, but that he would die on the cross that we might be reconciled in years to come. Father, what a miracle we have in our Savior. And we pray today, Father, that if there's those pharisaical places of our hearts, if there are people that we say, yeah, but God don't love them, yeah, but God won't go there, I pray, Father God, through the power of your Spirit, you would rebuke that in our hearts, that we would realize that your word is true, that you shall love the world, that you gave your Son. Father, Empower us by your spirit to communicate the good news. Teach us to love radically, passionately, to risk everything for one, for one that you would say is priceless. And we give you praise and glory because we know you did that for us. We love you so much. We thank you. We pray we are continually being made right through your spirit continually be made truly righteous by your power. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.